Our theme for this morning is the act of obedience of Christ. The act of obedience of Christ. It's very natural that we who are Bible-believing Christians, when we think of the work of Christ, immediately think of Christ's death for us, which is quite proper, of course. We remember the words of John the Baptist as he pointed out to Christ, turned and pointed the Jews to the one who was now on the threshold and was coming. His words, of course, were, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. So it's quite proper that we as Christians should fasten our mind a great deal of the time upon the fact that Christ died in my stead and in my place. And I must always really put this in the first person. We may speak of it, he died in our place, but in reality this is inaccurate. Because Christ died in the place of every one of us, if we accept him as Savior. And it only has Christ's death, the concept of Christ's death, has meaning only for me individually. If I try to make it a group thing, a block thing, an impersonality enters, which is apart from the teaching of the word of God. So therefore, it is quite proper that as we think someone asks us concerning Christ's work, that we should talk about his death for me. And for the individual, if he also will accept Christ as Savior, it is quite natural that we should put our emphasis upon Christ's death in substitution to remove our guilt. It is quite proper to express over and over again the wonder that if I accept him by uh, faith, if I do this, then his blood has washed me clean, that I deserve death, but he died for me, my guilt is gone. Now, theologically, this is spoken of as the passive obedience of Christ. The passive obedience of Christ. That is passive uh, in contrast to active, as we shall see uh, as we pursue our theme this morning, the active obedience of Christ. And the passive agreed obedience of Christ then turns upon Christ's death for me. But the scripture makes it very, very plain that Christ not only died for me, there was not only a passive obedience of Christ, but there was an active obedience of Christ. Consequently, if we will turn now, first of all, to the book of Romans, in the first chapter, verses 6 and 7, Romans 1, 6 and 7, Paul addresses the whole church at Rome. Not just some of the church, not just the elite, in quotation marks, uh, of the church, but he addresses the whole church in this vein. Among whom are ye also called of Jesus Christ, to all that be in Rome, that is all the Christians, beloved of God, called saints. And here we have an entirely different concept. It is not only that Christ died for us, but that there is something else involved here. That the holy God, looking upon those who were Christians, in Rome at this time, the whole church could call them already saints. We find that this is not only true in this place, but constantly repeated in uh, in the writings of Paul. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 1-2, We read this and we see what is the description of those who are called saints, looked upon as saints in the sight of the Holy God. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, unto the church of God, which is a Corinth. So again, it's the whole church. To them that are sanctified in Jesus Christ, called saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. So here is the description. That those who are called, who have called upon the name of Jesus Christ are already, by the Holy God, designated as saints. Again, we find that Paul uses this expression in Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 1, where we read, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus. To the saints which are at Ephesus. And again, in the, we find in the 18th verse, the eyes of your, your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. This is a present thing. He's pointing out that there is that which is related to the word saint which has a present meaning. 
which is something which is the which can be spoken of as the riches of the glory of his inheritance now related to the word saint. It's further in Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi, with the elders and deacons. But it's not only the elders and deacons, it's not only uh, the leaders of the church, but it's all the church. The whole church once more, as in the case of Rome, uh, Corinth, uh, Ephesus, uh, all these are called saints. Now, of course, the interesting thing is, is it not, thinking of, I'll just say it's also true in Colossians, though we won't read it, it's the same thing. Uh, it's interesting that in addressing the, uh, the church at Corinth in this way, the book of 1 Corinthians points out that they were anything but perfect. The church was not perfect. The individuals were scolded by Paul because they were not faithful in exercising discipline in the church. And in this sense, therefore, we find a curious thing. The question arises, how could the church of Corinth, being in this condition that Paul must uh, chide uh, for their failures, how is it that the whole church nevertheless can be expressed and be called saints? And the simple fact is, the Bible has said, well, when you've accepted Christ as Savior, then God calls you a saint. And of course, here we have a complete contrast with the modern or even the Roman Catholic concept of the word saint. Saint, uh, in most people's mind, is some kind of a special person uh, in the, among Christians and raised to a higher level. The Roman Catholic Church designates saints as those who are very special people. Uh, theo theologically, in the Roman Catholic Church, a saint is a person whose act, whose work, plus his suffering in the present time, means that he did not have to go to purgatory, and therefore he had some good works left over, which could be added to the depository of the grace of the church. And this is the technical concept of saint in the Roman Catholic classical theology. They are people whose good works plus their suffering means that they didn't have to go to purgatory and there's something good left over that goes to the depository of grace in the church that the church can then disperse to others. But this is certainly not the viewpoint of the scripture. The scripture turns and it says, have you accepted Christ as your savior? Are you even in the situation where the church is in Corinth? Well, nevertheless, the completely holy God designates you as a saint. And certainly if we're thinking at all this morning, uh, if those of us who are Christians and know our own lives, we must ask the question, how? How can God, who is holy, call me a saint? I can understand that he can say, you are washed clean from your guilt as a forensic washing, forensic de declaration by God as judge that your guilt is gone. But there's something more here, quite obvious. It is not only that my guilt is gone, but there is a positive note a positive element that you feel in this designation. And it's more than, than just being washed clean. It is that here in God's sight at the present time, I individually can be designated a saint because there is some positive element that is involved. What is this positive element? Well, this is that which theologically is spoken of as the act of obedience of Christ in contrast to the passive obedience of Jesus' death for us in substitution upon the cross. The scriptural teaching is this. Not only that Christ died for me, but he lived for me. It's, this is the great concept. Not only does his death accrue to me, but his keeping of the law is imputed to me. In Philippians 3.9, we read this. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. There is a statement here that I have a righteousness which is not my own. A righteousness which is not by the keeping of the law. Because, of course, none of us keep the law. And this is why we need the passive obedience of Christ and Jesus' death for us. So therefore, he is making a contrast here. There is a righteousness which we can have even now in the present life, which is in contrast to the attempt of being righteous on the basis of my good works. And what is it? Well, it's a righteousness that is not based on my works, but it is a righteousness which comes along with, this state, with my faith in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we have still a clearer statement 
concerning this in 2 Corinthians 5:21 and he and be he was made and he hath made him to be sin for us who know no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him in other words this this righteousness which God says we have now and wherein he can call us a saint is a part of Christ's work for us in 1 Corinthians 1:30 1 Corinthians 1.30 But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God was made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ is all these things to us. But one thing he is to us is not only redemption, which rests on his death, but he is righteousness to us. And again in Romans 10, 3 and 4, Romans 10 3 and 4. For they being ignorant, and the important thing here to notice is that this is talking about the Old Testament saints. Those who lived prior to the death of Christ and according to the knowledge they had looked forward in faith to Christ's coming. And here we find that this is spoken concerning them. Those who were on the other side. And then it says, well... These now miss the way. How did they miss it in contrast to those in the Old Testament who did not miss it? And Paul speaks this way. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves uh, unto or did not submit themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. So here we have a double emphasis, speaking of to us, but also, because then Paul admonishes us not to do this, but also saying, well, the, the really the Old Testament saints also uh, had the same thing. And that is that there is more here than a removal of guilt by the death of Christ. There is a positive supplied righteousness. Christ paid the penalty for us, but he also, but is something more. We are not only washed clean, but we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And here is the act of obedience of Christ. The passive obedience, Christ's death for us, the removal of the guilt, the act of obedience, but there is something more. And that is, God has not only declared upon the basis of Christ's death that my guilt is gone, but that at the present moment, I am clothed in, with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is the reason God can call me a saint. He sees me clothed in Christ's righteousness. As Christians, and speaking to those of us who are Christians here this morning, when we look to ourselves, we see quickly, if we have any honesty whatsoever and any sophistication in understanding ourselves, how many things I lack in the present life. How much of my life is marked by elements of sin. And I'm not just thinking here of the big weaknesses, those things that mark each of, each of us, those reoccurring big failures that are in our life. Each of us have some area in our life or areas in our life where we constantly stumble and where even the world would, would say, well, there's something that's a moral problem here. But I'm not talking about that. I'm not just talking of my lack in these big weaknesses, but in my strong points when I consider my life. At the point which men might say, well, he is not weak, but he is strong. And I, in honesty, look to myself. How quickly I understand that in the points which seem strong, there is, there is such overwhelming weakness. The mixture of motives. The being blown by the winds of opinion. Moving and shifting under the consensus that surrounds me. In my strong points and not my weak. Allowing myself to be infiltrated just because there is a pressure, a sociological pressure, something like this about me, a consensus about me. So therefore, now I look at my life as a Christian, and if I have any honesty, and if I am allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to me, rather than finding myself perfect by any means in such a situation that God, the Holy God, could call me a saint at the present moment, I find it is quite different. I find that not only in the place of my overwhelming weakness, but in the point of my strength, I am filled with that which causes me confusion. But at the same time, we must understand then that here is where the act of obedience enters. And that is that Christ met each situation for me. 
Christ kept the law for me perfectly at every situation that I face. So we have the fact that the Bible, uh, the Bible tells us and indicates uh, that at his baptism, he was baptized with water, baptized by the Holy Spirit, and here he began his official representative work for us. Well, now his official representative work, of course, was leading on to the cross. But let us notice that his work for me and for you, if you are a Christian, did not begin on the cross. That is not when his work for us began. His work for us began not when he died on the cross, but when he began to be the representative one for us in the beginning of his public ministry and his baptism by water and by the Holy Spirit. It is important to understand that the Bible says as soon as he was baptized uh, by the Holy Spirit, he, was, he had these 40 long days of temptation uh, by Satan. And if we'll read responsively together now, Luke 4, verses 2 through 13. Luke 4, 2 through 13. Being forty days tempted of the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterwards hungered. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. The devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for it is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shall thou serve. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. And Jesus answering said unto him, it is said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now here, therefore, we find this very specific temptation. A temptation that came immediately after his beginning of his public ministry. So here we have him becoming my representative man, as it were. It is not just as he died on the cross for me and for every Christian, but it's here that he began to be our representative. And immediately he was taken out into the wilderness, led there by the Holy Spirit, and tempted with these 40 days of tremendous temptation. And in the midst of it, we can understand That as I read this and I see this victory, the wonder of it is that in the work of the act of obedience of Christ, this victory which was won here by Christ during these days of overwhelming temptation is imputed to me. It is my victory if I have accepted Christ as Savior. It is my victory. But you will notice there is a little phrase in which it says that the at the end, what we've just read, Satan departed him, departed from him for a season. This is not by any means the, the whole temptation. If it is, it would be an overwhelming temptation. We could be glad that this victory is imputed to us, and yet it does not touch on every area of our personal temptations. And so we must realize that it is only a part of Christ keeping the law for us. Because in Hebrews 4.15, we read, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So it isn't that Satan just tempted him at these specific points, and we won't go into the reason why they're so crucial in Luke 4, but rather that every temptation that any of us have ever known, Christ also knew that temptation yet without sin, and was victorious in it, and whatever that temptation is, when we accept Christ as our Savior, that victory which Christ won 
in our particular temptation and weakness, is imputed to us. You are clothed with Christ doing in perfection what that which we do so poorly or not at all. We could run through and we could think of some of the things that this involves. It would only be partial because it would take a complete analysis of the life of Christ uh, to understand, and then we wouldn't exhaust it even then, all that is involved in what Christ did for us in his act of obedience for us when we became Christians. But let us think of some of the things that he did for which we can be thankful as we realize that God now has imputed these things, his keeping of the law in these areas, to us if we are Christians. First of all, we can think of that marvelous balance that Christ always exhibited. So we have his tremendous zeal. He had his tremendous zeal for God's holiness and God's name, not allowing anything pass to pass that would uh, bring... Uh, Something against either the name or the holiness of God. His overwhelming zeal, which could be expressed in many ways, but I would think of it especially in his cleansing the temple. When in John 2, 13 through 17, we read these words. John 2, 13 through 17. The Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence and make not my father's house, uh, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, quotes from the Psalms, the zeal of mine house has eaten me up. So here we have him, the, the one who is perfectly, perfectly sensitive to the holiness of God and to the name of God and will help not tolerate any aspersion in word or act cast upon the holiness or the name of God. He stands as a flaming fire for the holiness of God, being quite willing to make a little whip and just overturn the tables and drive out the money changers. But if this is all we see of Jesus, and we could be thankful because often we must say we are not as zealous for the holiness in the name of God. We are allow ourselves to be surrounded by people who blaspheme God, not just in swear words, but in the things they say about God, and often we don't raise our voice. We associate with them. We allow in the sense of, of being identified with them without raising our voice. We are not injured in the way uh, that Christ was injured for the holiness in the name of God. And yet if we only think of this side of it, we miss the whole point. Because we must remember that the whole time that this was true, Jesus had perfect compassion for mankind. This tremendous balance. So we read in Matthew 9, 36, concerning his compassion. Matthew 9, 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. He was moved with compassion for them. And how often... Every one of us, if we have any sensitivity, any spiritual sensitivity at all, must say, I sin in this balance. Either I do not have the zeal for the holiness in the name of God, or I lack compassion. But Jesus not only had perfect compassion and perfect zeal for the holiness in the name of God, but he had them in perfect balance. And then we can say, well, is it not wonderful that when I accept Christ as my Savior... Christ did this for me. So in this sense, this is one thing that is imputed to me. A balance between the holiness of God and the love of God that I myself never possessed for any one moment perfectly, no matter how I might strive for it. Further, however, let us understand as we consider his life, how we lack faithfulness to those who are not in Christ. How, how insensitive we are as we speak uh, indeed in saying we know that men need, need God. Men need Christ as Savior. And yet 
even the best of us, and it'll never do to point out anyone else at this point. As soon as we point out other people and do not include ourselves, we are in sin. Because it must be said, the best of men are insensitive to the needs of the lostness of men. But Jesus never was so. We can think of Jesus with Nicodemus and with his total sensitivity uh, for the lostness of this man who was before him. But it wasn't only Nicodemus. We can think of Jesus sitting at the well and his total, total sensitivity uh, to this woman sitting there at the well and her need of a savior. And he has this sensitivity to the, uh, shown to Nick, his attitude toward Nicodemus and the woman in the well, and he has it fully. He has it fully. And, but notice there's more than this. In bringing Nicodemus together with a woman at the well, we have a different situation that is introduced. It is not only that he was sensitive to them and had compassion for them and was faithful in speaking to them, but notice the balance with which he spoke to them. And how much every one of us who are Christians must acknowledge that often we are soft to the wrong people and hard to the wrong people. That when we're dealing with people and trying to help them in Christian things, how often we are soft to some and hard to others, and that we often get it totally reversed. And with Jesus, he never made the mistake. Jesus was hard, hard as steel to Nicodemus. And he was soft to the woman at the well, when almost everybody in the world would have reversed it, because Nicodemus was a religious man and high and had high repute. And people would have tended to be soft to him, and hard to the woman at the well, who was really lived on the level of the life of the prostitute. But not Jesus. Jesus reversed it completely. Jesus was hard in his compassion to Nicodemus, and he was gentle to the woman at the well in his compassion, and it was a total balance. And I, as I look back over my life as a Christian and as a Christian worker, I must say, God, I don't do this always. There's huge areas where, as I think at the end of the day, I've made a mistake, or at the end of a week, or the end of the month, and I stand here and I say, the balance has been wrong. And then I must remember the act of obedience of Christ. Christ kept the law for me in performing such balances, in the atti- not only outwardly, but in the attitude of his mind, as he lived thus in perfect balance, this accrues to me as a partial por- as a portion of his act of obedience when I have accepted Christ as my Savior. Of course, it presses on still further, and we could certainly go in a large book or many a series of sermons as to all that would be involved with such an attitude of weakness and Christ fulfilling these things and the law for us. But to press on, it's the same thing. As we come to men, the question of of weeping for men. There is many a man who is known as interested in being in helping other people become Christians, and yet one never sees a tear upon his cheek. It will not do to be a soul winner in quote unquote, if we like the term or not. It will not do to be such a one without tears. And yet we must say that every Christian who has a burden for people up to a level. Often there is an element of mere duty in it, mere repetitive action, an activity to cover up guilt feelings, a social pressure to which we're responding in the group in which we live that is far from the tears that we find on the the cheeks of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. We can be thankful as we come today, and if we have any honesty, we think back and we say, yes, it's perfectly true. Much of my Christian work, which, has its, which is the best of my Christian work, is marred deeply by the lack of tears. But thank God, Jesus cried. Jesus had perfect compassion to the people he faced. And in situa- such a situation, Christ kept the law for me. Christ also fed the hungry. It is a very difficult balance to keep spiritual things first and yet never to forget that a part of true spirituality is the whole man and a part of the whole man and our care and interest the whole man is also his material needs. Jesus never got confused. Jesus never made the wrong balance. The spiritual things were first because these are most important. Yet at the same time, Jesus did feed the hungry and he fed them with beauty and he fed them not just hard-heartedly, as some sort of a socialistic program 
but he fed them again with compassion. So we can read in Matthew 14, 15 through 21, concerning his feeding the people uh, at that place. When it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a desert place, and the time is now past. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. And Jesus said unto them, they, they need not depart. Give ye them to eat. Tremendous statement. The, uh, it's up to the, his followers to see that they have to eat. And they said to him, We have here but five loaves and two fishes. And he said, Bring them thither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down in the grass and took the five loaves and the two fishes. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and brake and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples uh, to the multitudes. And they did eat all eat and were filled and took up the fragments that remained twelve baskets full. And they that had eaten were about five thousand men between, uh, beside women and children. Of course, this is a miracle and this is something we cannot do. We cannot feed men this way. But it does not remove the teaching. The teaching isn't only that this was a miracle. It was the, that Jesus was interested in the material needs of men. And he spoke to the disciples and said, you ought to be interested in feeding them. And often we have to say that we miss our way. Either we become involved with some kind of a new humanism under religious terms, or we come to the place where we think of saving men, but we never think of the needs of their bodies. Jesus didn't make this mistake. And again, I would say, let us be glad that as I look at my own failures and we look at our failures and our consciences are touched, that we can understand, nevertheless, here is another place where Christ in his act of obedience perfectly kept the law for us. Jesus did not just teach the teaching of the Good Samaritan. He was the Good Samaritan. That which he pictured was that which he was in every bit of his life. It was not just shut up to a special group, though he understood the specialness of the Jews. He understood all these things. But nevertheless, on the basis of the Good Samaritan, loving one neighbor as himself is pointed out to be loving people everywhere of every class and kind. Jesus didn't just teach this, he was this. He was the good Samaritan, the neighbor to all men, as is portrayed in Luke 10, 25 through 37. And you and I must say to ourselves, well, I fail. I fail. Part of our failure, of course, is just because we're finite, and this is not a failure in the way of sin. Finiteness is never sin. But we also must admit there are many times when it has nothing to do with our finiteness. We could be good neighbors, and we do not, for one reason or another. We send people away instead of opening our arms to all men on every side. And as I look at this, and um, I begin to tremble and think, if this is Jesus' standards, where do I stand? And then I remember, yes, but Christ has washed you clean. Isn't that good? But aren't you even doubly glad today? That we're talking about the act of obedience of Christ. And it's not only that he has washed me clean from my failures, but it's something more. And that is he kept the law for me. He has been the good Samaritan. He has loved the neighbor for me. How often I lack balance in my attitude toward men of greatness and weakness. And Jesus never did. There was always a perfect balance in, the, in Jesus' dealing with men. There was no fear of man to Jesus. No fear of man to Jesus. And there's not a single one of us in this room, no matter how long we have, become, we have been Christians, that times do not have a fear of men. But there was no fear of man in Jesus. And indeed, we can find this in the balance of his dealing with men. He rebuked those Pharisees who were so proud in their legalism. But the woman taken in adultery in John 8, 1 through 9, it was the very opposite. He was most gentle. He spoke against the rationalists of the day, which are like the liberals of our own day, the Sadducees, and he spoke against them clearly. Yet on the other hand, we can think of that consummate tenderness when he had to deal with the little children. In, Luke, in Matthew 9, 19, 13 through 15. Matthew 19, 13 through 15. And then they brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked him, rebuked them. But Jesus said, Suffer the little children, and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed thence. 
And here you have this tremendous balance of Jesus not caught in the fear of men and not caught in the social attitudes of men. So to the Pharisees, the legalists, he says this. Yet to the woman taken in adultery, he did not say your sin doesn't matter. That wasn't the point. But his attitude was treating her as we would express here uh, in our work as a human being. He talked against the Sadducees and he didn't give them one place to move. He allowed no place for their rationalism, which is equal, in, equal today to the uniformity of natural causes in a closed system and naturalism. He gave them no place. Yet when they brought the little children to him, he had time to take them in his arms. He spoke to these lawyers who had everything figured out, down to the last little weighing of the grain, not in the way of the teaching of the word of God, the Old Testament, but in the tradition of men. And he spoke with tremendous force against the lawyers. And yet at the same time, while speaking against the lawyers, what, what love we find and what comprehension in that which really is important. When we read in Mark 12, 41 through 44, his speaking uh, of the widow's might. In Mark 12, 41 through 44. And Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury. And many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called him unto him his disciples, and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow has cast more in than all that cast into the treasury. For they did cast in of their abundance. We would say the affluent society. They did cast in of their abundance. But she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. So he turns here and he says to the lawyers, Get away. Go away with all this little cut and dried, this against this, beyond the teaching of the word of God. Do you want to know something? It's something else. And here you see this balance, this lack of fear of men. He said, do you see this widow? Never mind all these little laws that you've added through the rabbinical tradition to the Old Testament teaching. These are not what counts. But what counts is that this dear woman can bring everything she has and give it to God. And here you find this this tremendous balance of Jesus in all that he did. And then I, again, I turn to myself and I say, but what a difference. What a difference to my own life and how quickly I get involved and get the, get the things reversed. Get the things reversed. Uh, but Jesus didn't. And then I can say, well, thank you, Christ, for keeping the law for me at this point. Another thing you find with Jesus overwhelmingly, which is involved with what we have just said, and that is his dealing with God and Caesar. God and Caesar. Matthew 22, 17, we have the uh, famous statement, of course, of Jesus concerning the things of, uh, of God and Caesar. Matthew 22, 17. Matthew 22, 17. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you tempt me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought him a penny. And he said to them, Whose image and subscription? Whose is the image and subscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. Then said he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Here we have not only an expression, but if you examine his life, he kept this again in perfect balance. The things of God are first, but the same things of Caesar have their proper place. And again, we feeling the tremendous pressures of our own day, and the tremendous, especially under the manipulation of our own day and the propaganda of our own day, we cry aloud and we say, but I don't keep this balance. I often get caught. I often get caught. Either I, either I fail to see that the things of Caesar have their proper place, or I begin to make them equal with the things of God, rather than the things of God not only being separated, but being supreme. But it was not so with Jesus. Never so with Jesus. The balance was there. And so we find that uh, the wonder, the wonder of the fact is, again, that when I am caught in these things and I cry aloud, it's not only I am washed in the blood of Christ for my failures in these areas, but there is also the overwhelming fact that Christ did it for me. So it is imputed to me. Christ did it, and God imputes this to me. All these things were in there as failure. I can see I am not only cleansed, but clothed upon 
with the righteousness, the perfect keeping of the law uh, of Jesus Christ. When we begin to talk about loving, and word is a cheap word, uh, word today, everybody talks about loving. The humanist who hasn't a clue what love means talks a lot about loving. The liberal theologian talks a lot about loving, and yet at the same time haven't any idea of either origins of love or categories of love. But we are different. We understand why love is possible, reaching back into the Trinity itself. We understand categories of love because they're set down in the scriptures. And yet at the same time, as soon as I as a Christian begin talking about love, I can't just throw stones at other people when they're talking their misuse of the word love because we have to acknowledge that as soon as we begin to look at the, uh, at the commands of God and what's involved in Christian loving, we must be overwhelmed and acknowledge that often we fail dismally at this place. So we can read in Matthew 5, 21 through 22, Jesus' statement about what loving really means. Matthew 5, 21 through 22. Ye have heard that it was said of those in old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So here we have Jesus' statement. Jesus' statement is that love isn't just an outward action. Love is a, a... Something that is an attitude of the heart. He brings the law deeper. It isn't that he says the law doesn't matter. That isn't what Jesus does. But he brings the law deeper. He brings it into motivations. He brings it into what we might call our mentality. He brings it into our attitudes. And at such a place, certainly we must consider, if we, know, if we don't read the Bible just as kind of a, um, <clears throat> a pious statement, if we read it as really, as we would say in this place, being truth and being the word of God and being the law of God and therefore binding upon men and especially, surely, binding upon Christians as well as other men. When I read this, wherein the concepts of love are carried from the external into the internal, I must be overwhelmed. And then I can remember what Jesus did. For we find him on the cross in Luke 23, 33 and 34. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the male factors in the right hand, one on the right hand, the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his garment and cast lots. They were shooting dice up against the foot of the cross. These rough soldiers. And there he hung naked as they were parting his clothing. And they just shot dice right up against the foot of the cross. And in the midst of this situation, in the whole situation, Jesus really could say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here you have a, a, a marvelous keeping of his own teaching of what love really means, an attitude of the heart, and not just an outward expression and some false, bogus thing. And as we see it there, and I consider my own lack of love, even when the outward thing seems to be loving, so often there is that inward, their inward mentality which would not stand scrutiny, certainly by the eyes of God. And yet I can be thankful. Did Christ say that on the cross? Did he really show what love really means when he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they did? Well, I can be glad now thinking of this morning's study because in doing this, he kept the law for me. It isn't just he washed me clean. Here is a thing which is imputed to me. It is what God sees me to be when I am clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. By this time, we certainly can begin to understand why God can call the whole church at Rome saints. Why he was able to call uh, the whole, why he was able to speak of the whole church of Corinth with its, with its functioning weaknesses and sin. Why he nevertheless could turn to the whole congregation and say, you're saints. Why are they saints? Not because they were acting as saints, but because God sees them, the holy God, once they have become Christians, as clothed upon with the righteousness of Christ. All these things imputed to them. As I turn from the question of loving to the central question of willing the will of God in my life and the question of grieving the Holy Spirit, because the Bible says as a Christian we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and we can make him sad. 
when I begin to think of this, again, it is like the question of love. Uh, the further I go in my spirituality, the deeper I must understand that I fail. And this is the same, same thing with this whole question of really willing the will of God in my life. Of the really facing the question of the grieving of the Holy Spirit in my life. In Matthew 26, 36 through 46, not my will but thine be done. Not my will but thine be done. Not my will but thine be done. And as he was, we're told further that he was obedient. Obedient even unto death. Even the death of the cross. And so we have that tremendous statement concerning Jesus' obedience. Jesus' obedience to the Father, the perfect obedience to the Father, as it is given to us in Philippians 2, 7 and 8. Philippians 2, 7 and 8. And made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion of a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even to the death of the cross. And any one of us who have one streak of honesty in us, just even one streak of honesty in us, how often we have to acknowledge that we withdraw from the least of sufferings. As soon as there's any suffering, never mind the cross, as soon as there's any suffering, just one hard look, as soon as we're confronted with a consensus of people about us who look at us askance, how we crumble, how we give up, how we withdraw, let alone physical suffering. And yet we're told here about Jesus. Well, Jesus went on really willing the will of the Father, really being obedient, never grieving the Holy Spirit who was working with him, you'll remember. Never doing any of these things, even to the death of the cross. And how thankful we ought to be this morning that when we are Christians, Jesus did this for me. Do I withdraw? Have I drawn my hand back? Well, if I am a true Christian this morning, it isn't only that my guilt is removed in these things, but, never, but I am also have imputed to me Christ perfectly keeping the law for me. Christ perfectly willing the will of the Father for me. This is mine now. I am clothed upon with this as with a garment. As we come into these areas, surely we would have to deal before we come to the conclusion with a question of pride. Pride is a horrible thing. Pride is putting ourselves in the wrong place. And pride, pride can come at strange places. And there is perhaps no pride, no pride so terrible as pride concerning spiritual things. And yet it is so easy to fall in this, and we all fall into it. And if somebody told me they never fell into it, I would say either you're a liar or you just don't understand yourself. Pride overtakes us. Pride involves us in some, some little thing or other. But when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, we have the utter opposite. Because here we find Christ, the eternal second person of the Trinity. He did not need to be humble, did he? As he was the eternal second person of the Trinity. He's verily God. He has had a hand, he has a part in creating all things. Nothing was created without his having a part in it. And yet as we consider in John 13, 4 and 5, Jesus' action. We read there Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he was come from God and went to God. He riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. And after he had poured water into a basin, began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel wherein he was girded. Here we have the Lord Jesus. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ, real humility. Humility rooted down into really his attitudes and his actions in a place which was demeaning, in which in which there was no necessity whatsoever for him to do this. But he did it. And when I accept Christ as my Savior, here again let me say, Christ did this for me. This is imputed to me. This tremendous humility of the Lord Jesus Christ, in contrast to my pride in my Christian life, Jesus did this for me, and it was imputed to me. And what more shall we say? Because we could talk for hours. We just remember what it said in the book of Hebrews, that he was tempted in every point like as we are, yet without sin. So down every dark path that is in your life and in my life, not just the things we have talked about,
But in every dark path that you ever walk, and there is no dark path that you ever go upon where Jesus did not have your temptation, but without sin. And this, is, this does not remove any temptation. We cannot say it's just talking about the polite temptations. This isn't what it's saying. The book of Hebrews is saying something overwhelmingly profound. And that is there is no man, no woman who lives, who is tempted at any point, wherein Christ did not know that explicit temptation, but without sin. Whatever it is wherein you fail, wherein the fault lies in our Christian life, and there's not few things but many, it is not then only that Christ has washed us clean from this, but he has kept the law from me in this. This is the act of obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ kept the law perfectly for me in every place. What is it like? What is it like? Well, it is like the little boy who puts on his father's overcoat and buttons it above his head. And you look at the little boy, but you don't see the little boy. You see just the father's overcoat. And this is the biblical picture. It's overwhelmingly beautiful, so beautiful that we must be touched in our theo feelings as well as our minds. The understanding that Christ kept the law for me at every point. And when I become a Christian, this is imputed for me, or to me, so that I am like the little boy with the overcoat buttoned above his head. Now we can understand Romans 1, 6 and 7, where it says you are called saints. You are saints in the present life in the sight of God. You are saints because you're clothed upon with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus, which covers you at every place because he was tempted in every point like as you are, yet without sin. I could not preach this sermon without mentioning the death of Dr. Gresham Machen back in January 1st, 1937, one of the great men in the church of our generation. A man that would be thought of as a scholar, but a man also who understood with his heart. And when he was dying out in the plains of Dakota from pneumonia, out there ministering to little churches well, in his gentleness, and he caught pneumonia there, and he was dying, and his last words were this. And these are the last words of the great theologian. I am so thankful for the act of obedience of Christ. No hope without it. I am. So thankful for the act of obedience of Christ. No hope without it. What did he mean, no hope without it? Well, Dr. Machen, Das Machen, knew his Bible. And he knew Matthew 22, 11 through 13. Matthew, 11, Matthew 22, 11 through 13. Which we read for our scripture reading. And here is the wedding. It's a parable, because there's coming that great time of the future, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Jesus says this about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And when the king, king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, comest thou in thither, not having a wedding garment? He was left speechless. And then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him to outer darkness and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is Christ speaking. Christ the Lamb of God who came that no man has to be in this situation. But what did the man lack? The man lacked a wedding garment. It isn't just that he lacked being, lacked being washed clean in the blood of Christ, though he did lack this quite obviously, but that isn't what Jesus is talking about here. He lacked something positive. He lacked a wedding garment. And the act of obedience of Christ is to the individual Christian his wedding garment. This is what Dossie Machen understood. And Dr. Machen therefore was able to say, he, he, of course he was trusting in the finished work of Christ. But he went beyond this. He went to the positive, active reality. And he knew that in a very few moments he was going to be standing in the presence of God. But standing there in the presence of God, he knew this as well. And that is that he wasn't going to be just washed clean. He was going to have a wedding garment on. A wedding garment so he wouldn't have to be speechless, as this man was speechless in Christ's parable. This is all wonderful and overwhelming. And yet, I wouldn't end here. 
without mentioning something else. Because the Bible at this point does bring in another element, an element that it seems to me must be mentioned or the whole thrust of the scripture is not complete. In Romans 16.2, we read these words. Romans 16.2. Speaking of receiving Phoebe with hospitality, that ye receive her in the Lord as become a saints. I would point out here in the book of Romans, Romans 1, in the beginning he has called them saints. As he comes to the end, however, he says, this is then something which becometh you as saints. In the book of Ephesians, the same thing is stressed. In Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 3, and then the 8th verse. Ephesians 5, 1 through 3. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. And hath given himself for an offering and a sacrifice to God of a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and uncleanness or covetousness, let it not once be named among you as becometh saints. And in the eighth verse, For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And the ninth verse tells us you can't do it in yourself, but here's how you can do it. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. So we're pointed to the fruit of the Spirit to produce this fruit through us as we look to him to do it. But what I want to point out at this time in Romans 16.2 and also in Ephesians 5.1.3, you have this intriguing phrase, and that is, there is a life to live now as become a saints. It is not that the kind of your life makes you a saint. This is the, the mistake, mistaken doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church at this particular place. It is not that the life you live makes you a saint. It is reversed. It is that if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, you are a saint because you are clothed with this wedding garment. But if you are a saint, then your life should demonstrate something through the power of the Holy Spirit of the reality of your sainthood. You are called to be in practice by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit what you already are in God's sight. This is what you're called upon. So therefore, as I look at my life, I am to remember this. And that is, now if I am a Christian, this is what I am in God's sight. So in faith, I am to walk this in practice now. I am a saint. I should show something of it in my life. And if we had a second sermon to preach immediately after the first, we could put this in total balance. Because we must remember, of course, that the way the saints live now, this makes a difference. It affects history. The way that we live now, whether we live exhibiting something of being saints or not, changes my own history and other people's history. So suddenly history doesn't disappear just because of the act of obedience of Christ. Because I am clothed upon with the act of obedience of Christ does not mean that history just disappears. It does not mean that it's immaterial whether or not I live as a saint. This isn't the point of the whole thing, of course, because the Bible goes right on and stresses the other side. Your life affects history now, and there will be a believer's judgment. So if we had an evening service, perhaps this evening I would preach on the importance of living like saints. And I would have to add this, or the sermon would be incomplete. And yet at the same time, I don't want to end there. I want to end on what we took all the time for, and that is the wonder of the act of obedience of Christ. Let us end with gladness. Let us end with joy. Let us end with overwhelming thankfulness that when we appear before God, we can say with Dr. Machen that we can be thankful for the act of obedience of Christ. Christ did die. The passive obedience is real. If we have accepted Christ, if we have cast ourselves upon him, my, our guilt is gone. He took our punishment. He took the punishment for our breaking of the law. But Christ didn't just become our representative of the cross. He began with his public ministry to be our representative. He lived for us. His act of obedience is for us. He kept the law for us as Christians. Therefore, in conclusion, let us say with thanksgiving and with gladness this morning.
that if we have bowed before God as creator and cast ourselves upon Christ as Savior, then being a Christian now, that we are not like the man who was left speechless, because, thank God, on the basis of the act of obedience of Christ and all Christ's keeping of the law being imputed to us, that this day we are not without a wedding garment. Shall we pray together? Our Heavenly Father, we ask thee that these things may never be words to us. How easily we fall into them being just God words. Some pious statement that gives us an emotional lift. And then we forget. Forgive us, our God. And make us to understand that without the passive obedience of Christ, there there would be no act of obedience. Make us to understand that if Jesus didn't die on the cross and remove our guilt, that then... None of this other would have meaning. So make us glad that he was really willing to die as a propitiation, as a substitute, acknowledging that we have true moral guilt as we have so often deliberately done what we knew to be wrong. And then, therefore, because thou dost exist and thou hast expressed thy character to us, we have to acknowledge we're sinners. And yet our Heavenly Father also this morning overwhelm us with thanksgiving that Christ has done this other thing for us in his act of obedience that if truly we have bowed before thee as creator and acknowledge we are not the center of the universe, if we have bowed before thee as the personal God, if we have bowed before thee as a sinner and cast ourselves on Christ as our Savior, that then it isn't just for some future date that we have a wedding garment, but that we are clothed in these things now and these keeping of the law of God by Christ, this is imputed to us at the present moment. So that as we sit here in each other's presence, that we are saints. Help us, our Father, through the work of the Holy Spirit, to live as saints, because we are saints. And we say thank you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.